If you would join me in a word of prayer, I, I just want to just, we've been praying this morning, we've been singing praises to God, and I just want to cover this message in his prayer one more time. Father God, oh Lord, we have worshipped you through song this morning. We have prayed to you. We have been praying to you all week. And now, Lord, this moment of the preaching of your word where we are worshiping you once more through the preaching. Father, I pray that you would receive this worship. And I pray, Lord, that your people would be changed. These things we ask and pray in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you would join me this morning, I will be in the book of John. Chapter 13, I will be preaching from uh, verses 31 through 35. John 13, 31 through 35. And if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. John 13, 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. These are the very words of God. You may be seated. Our text today comes at a definitive time in the lives of the disciples. They have just finished eating the Passover meal in the upper room, and Jesus will soon be arrested and condemned to death. In a few short hours, he'll be crucified on the cross of Calvary. The disciples will be scattered, afraid, and doubtful. The one they believed in will have been taken from them. Their faith will be tested as never before. This section of Scripture is included by most theologians as the farewell discord. The placement of that is, is, there's some discussion over that. But this, this portion of Scripture is considered the farewell discord. What Jesus was saying to his disciples as his farewell. There was ever a time in their lives when they needed each other. It will be then. Our circumstances today are not much different. The difficulties we face are very similar. The world in which we live is increasingly less tolerant of our faith. Our religious liberties are vanishing before our very eyes. Our faith is being tested as never before. And if we ever needed each other, 
We do so today more than we ever have. I realize also that we aren't the only ones who are struggling. The world is a difficult place to live. I don't know if you've noticed that. Our economy is still not stable. People are concerned about health care and safety and insurance and retirement and a host of other issues. And many feel as if they are forced to face these difficulties alone. With no one to care, no one to understand. Our society is changing rapidly, but the basic needs of humanity remain the same. Jesus spoke these words a a couple thousand years ago, but they are as timely today as they were when he spoke them. He urges the disciples regarding their love for one another. And I want to look at the directives that Jesus gives us as we consider, my title this morning is, What Love Proves. What Love Proves. And this morning you're going to walk away knowing that love proves something. Now the main idea of our text is fairly simple to state, but impossible to live out consistently apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus commands us to love one another even as he has loved us. That's the point of the passage. He commands us to love one another, even as as he loves us. And we're going to unpack that so we understand what that means, because you cannot live out of something that you don't understand. Many times Christians will affirm things because we heard them all the time, but we have no idea what it means When our feet hit the floor in the morning, what does that look like in our lives? The crux of this command is to understand how Jesus loved us. If we're to love one another, even as he's loved us, we need to know how has he loved us. My first point, Jesus loves us. And his love was a costly love. His love was a costly love. We see that in verses 31 and 32. The text reads, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. End quote. Now, this wasn't, in my message as, as part of my transcript, but I want to I deal with this just for a moment because I think it's important. In verse 31, it starts off, these aren't the words of Jesus, these are the words of John. When he had gone out, Jesus said. When he had gone out. And what he's pointing back to is at this point in time, Judas gets up and leaves. And when he leaves, he sets in motion the glorification of Jesus. Because when he leaves, it starts his betrayal, his arrest, his beating, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. It all starts really is set in motion at this point of time 
when Judas gets up and leaves, it starts. My time has come. I want to tell you something. Sometimes we look at things negatively because we don't understand. And it takes us looking back at these things to really understand what's going on. In this moment, we could say that this was a terrible thing that that Judas betrayed our Lord and Savior, but without that betrayal, there's no crucifixion. Without a crucifixion, there's no glorification. There's no salvation. This is a very critical part of God's sovereign plan. Now, some of you out there are sitting and thinking that this ministry coming to an end is a sad thing. But what I tell you is this is the beginning of a glorious thing. We, we, can, we will look back at this moment and we will see that this was the beginning of greater glory for God through His church. When He had gone out, That moment was an important moment. But in our text, when he says, now is the Son of Man glorified, this statement takes us back to John 12, 23, where after hearing that some of the Greeks were seeking Him, Jesus said this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. As the context there makes clear, he was referring to his death on the cross. The cross glorified both Jesus and the Father. John 12, 28. Glorification, not in the spectacular display of blinding light. That wasn't the type of glorification that's happening here. The greatest moment of displayed glory was in the shame of the cross. Think about that. On on one level, the cross was the epitome of humiliation and shame. There was no worse way to die than to be stripped and naked and beaten and then nailed to a wooden cross and hung up to suffer a slow death as a public spectacle. There was no greater shame. But in another superior sense, the cross was the epitome of glory both for the Father and for the Son. To glorify God is to magnify or display His perfect attributes. At the cross, God's love, righteousness, justice, mercy, and grace were magnified as at no other occasion in history. At the cross, God's justice was upheld as His sinless Son bore an awful penalty that is justice demanded for all sinners. But His love and grace shine forth as He offers eternal life to all who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus alone. The cross. The only time in history where perfect justice meets perfect love. The cross. John 13.32 refers to Jesus' resurrection and ascension. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. End quote. The resurrection was God's stamp of approval on Jesus' death and resurrection. 
It was a stamp that exalted him again to God's right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, Ephesians 1, 21. But the point is this. Jesus' love, as seen at the cross, was costly. That theme is repeated over and over in the Bible. Salvation is free, right? It's a free gift. But it costs Jesus. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with cross and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Cost him. Or Ephesians 5.2, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. It cost him something. Or Ephesians 5.21, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. It cost him something. Or 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It cost him something. And I realize it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Hebrews 12.2. Through the cross he would bring many sons to glory. Hebrews 2.10. But still, for Jesus to go to the cross when it was an act of supreme self-sacrifice, it was costly. We need to remember that. That this faith that we have, this salvation that we possess, this church that we've now become, it costs Jesus something. But it wasn't just a costly love. It was also a caring love. We see that in verse 33. It says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. End quote. We see Jesus' tender care for his disciple here in two ways. First, he addresses them as little children. It's a very endearing term. And it's the only time that this word is used in the Gospels. It's only used elsewhere in 1 John where the apostle whom Jesus loved uses it seven times. It was a word of tender feelings, much as a father has toward his children who need his help and protection. The church is a place of love and tenderness and family bonds. I've said this many times at our church. I grew up in, in, in a city, in Trenton, New Jersey. And my father, who at the time was not a believer, he used to tell us when we would go out, because we would never, we, it wasn't like today where you could just go out and play. We had to go out with one of our brothers or my sister, or we would have to go out. There would have to be a couple of us. And my dad said, he would always tell us, he says, if something happens to you in the street, I want to do two funerals. I don't want to do one. This is what family is. If anything happens, you never leave family. 
when you leave this house. You come back together or you don't come back at all. That's how my dad was. But his point was this, that there is a bond there that is even greater than your life. And when I came to church and when we and God saved me and we called each other brother, there was something much deeper than that. When we call each other brother, it's not like um, guys in the street saying, what's up, bro? That's not what it's meant. It's a, a word of tenderness. It's a word of family. It's a deep bonding word. You are my brother. You are my sister. That's what the church is made up of. Not a bunch of people who share niceties with one another. We love one another. Jesus in our text is talking to them in a caring, loving way. We see Jesus' tender care for his own and that he explains to them that he will be leaving them soon and they could not follow him to heaven at that time. My Sister-in-law just left. She was with us for a week. And I didn't tell my son that I was going to use him as an illustration. I usually tell him, but I'm going to because it just hit me. But I remember when she said goodbye this morning, he's like, Dad, I must be growing up because I, I was able to fight back the tears. And I was like, no, I like it when you shed some tears when family leaves. You know why? Because it shows they mean something to you. Bethel, do your church members, do your family here, do they mean something to you? They should. You're just not a bunch of people who come and meet here. This is not an Elks meeting. This is not a PTA meeting. This is the church that was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ that cost him something. And he says, now you love one another. He promises them that they will be reunited with him later. But the point is, Jesus' love was filled with tender feelings for his disciples. That's the point here. But Jesus' love was also a commanded love. In verse 34, this is the this is the meat of the text. Verse 13, 34. A new commandment I give you, or a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And Jesus wasn't just talking about having nice, nice thoughts towards each other, which no one else can see. I mentioned this last week. He's not saying something like, um, I don't like her, but I love her in the Lord. It's not what he's saying. Like, oh, I don't like this guy, but he's my brother. It's not what he's saying here. He's talking about love that can be seen. It stems from the heart, but it's seen in outward actions. It's the sort of love that stands out conspicuously in this self-centered world. The world does not love like we love. The world should see the way that we Christians love one another and say they must be followers of Jesus. 
Now, have you ever thought about the diversity among Jesus' apostles? He chose Simon the Zealot. Now, zealots were a radical political group that used intrigue, violence, force, and deception to try to achieve its goal of liberating Palestine from Roman rule. They refused to pay taxes, and they attacked and murdered government officials, especially the hated tax collectors. This were the zealots. They hated tax collectors. And then he chose Matthew, the tax collector. Right? The tax collectors had sold their souls to Rome. They milked the Jewish people of their money in order to line their own pockets. You could not have put two men of more diverse backgrounds into the same group if you tried. These are the men that Jesus is telling to love one another. They hated each other. In going to the cross, Jesus was obeying the Father's commandment of John 10, 18, and now he commands his followers to love one another even as he has loved us. Now keep in mind, Jesus will soon be crucified. His time with the disciples is drawing to a close. He has spent about three years with them, and they've experienced much together. There's so much that, we, that he could have talked about, but Jesus knows that they need final instruction. This is not a time for small talk or idle chatter. Jesus is emphasizing the matters of importance. He is leaving final words that will guide their lives in his absence. Jesus is aware of the need for love amongst his disciples, and he knows it will be imperative to their spiritual well-being and and advancement of the gospel. This is a gospel issue. This is an important issue. He admonishes them to love one another. This is a matter of great importance. And the point is, all these men were different. They had different personalities and different points of views. And they were to lay aside any personal differences that they had and love one another. Their love for each other was to extend or exceed any former controversies or obstacles they face. This stands as a great challenge for us today. We too are called to love one another. I don't think the church understands this. Because I'm going to tell you how churches pretty much come into being. Get a guy like Kevin or a guy like me, and we have a circle of influence. We We call them friends. People who we do life with, people who we do ministry with, we go to church with. So when someone says they're going to start a church, we usually talk to the people around us and get some feedback from them and ask them if they want to be a part of this work. And and they typically say yes, and and they come around us and we start a church. But what happens is our friends are usually people who look like us, who make as much money as we do who live in the same neighborhoods as we live in, who go to the same schools that we go to, who have the same political views that we do, who have the same theological, theological views as we do. We swim in, swim in the same theological stream. We listen to the same kinds of music. That's just how it is. But that flies in the face of what the church should be. 
Let me give you a picture of what the church should be. In the Middle East, you have Israelis and Palestinians, right? They hate each other, right? You, You know that, right? They hate each other. Church is if someone would go to the Middle East and see the church of Jesus Christ filled with Palestinians and Israelis worshiping God and loving one another, and people come into that body and they shake their head going, what is this? That's the church. Where God brings together two people who typically are enemies that wouldn't do life together, that don't go to the same schools, don't make as much money as one another, but they come together to worship God and to love him and love each other. That's church. And there is a physical witness that the church should have that when people come into that body and they see them, they say that only God could do this. This isn't something that Kevin did because he had a bunch of friends or that Will did because they liked the way he preached or they think he's a great guy. And that's what church is. That's not what church is in this, though. People should see this and be amazed. Friends, we are at the prefaces of amazing this culture with the glory of God and bring together these two bodies. Don't miss that. We too are all different. We have different likes and dislikes, different strengths and weaknesses, different callings and points of view, but we need each other. The world in which we live creates challenges we can't overcome alone, and we must be willing to lay aside any differences we have and love one another. In our culture right now, there is probably the deepest divide along ethnic boundaries that we've ever seen. And the church, the church of Jesus Christ, this church that we've been talking about this morning, this church that costs God so much, this church that his spirit indwells and empowers, doesn't even have a seat at the table in these conversations in our culture because how we live out our church lives. The culture looks at us and saying, you're more segregated than any other institution in in our society. Why would we come to you for answers? What do you have to offer? We've got the truth. And we hide the truth behind our own desires. We hide the truth behind what we want, what we like. And people can't see the truth that we have. That doesn't bring God any glory. I just pray that not just this church, just Emmanuel, but churches all over this city, all over this state, all over the world understand the physical witness and the power of that in our societies. And and, and I, I mentioned ethnicity, but there's... 
I don't know if you understand the, the Serbian-Croatian struggle. They hate each other. Hate each other. They're both white. You walked into a room, you couldn't tell a Serb from a Croatian. They could. Right? They know what it is. And if they walked into a church that had Serbs and Croatians there, they would, it would blow their mind. See, it's just not ethnic stuff. I, I, and I'm getting off, off point, but I think this is important. You know, I think it's a problem when right now one of the big things in this city is Asian churches are popping up everywhere. Popping up everywhere. It should break your heart that Asians that come to this country feel like they come to America, but they need to carve out their own little Asian church to worship Jesus Christ. That should break your heart. But we do that all the time. Not only do you have Asian churches, you got cowboy churches. You know, you got, you got black churches. You got rich churches. You've got poor churches. Let me tell you something. There is a deeper divide amongst economics than there is ethnic divide. It is much easier to get rich guys of different ethnic backgrounds to fellowship together than it is to get a rich guy and a poor guy of the same ethnic background to worship together. The CEO does not want to go to church with the janitor, and he especially doesn't want the janitor as one of his elders. That's a huge deal. Why? Because we hide the glory of God behind the things that we like. The commandment that we love one another is the marching orders for believers. This is our marching orders. Jesus isn't speaking of something he hopes the disciples are going to grasp and engage in. He isn't offering suggestions for their consideration. In fact, he reveals this matter isn't optional. He has commanded they love one another. This was the last charge Jesus gave the disciples before being led away to the cross. It was imperative that they love one another. The teaching isn't new to the disciples. They've been challenged concerning love before. Jesus spoke of loving their neighbor on many occasions. Like, likely the most memorable was the one he spoke of in the great commandment in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. They knew it. We too need the reminding that loving one another isn't optional. We know love is essential in our relationships to Christ, and yet many times we allow anger and bitterness to hinder our love for one another. My friends, we cannot be right with God nor love him if we do not love our brother. There are a couple things about love that I want to share with you briefly. One, we know that love is selfless. Many people today are willing to show compassion toward those who are beneficial to them. But Jesus loved all, regardless of their condition or ability, to return any favors. In fact, he was often drawn toward those who had nothing to offer, those in desperate need of help. His love was selfless. But his love was also impartial. 
Jesus was not prejudiced with his love. He showed no partiality toward a particular group while neglecting others. He took time for the poor and needy. He loved the sick and hurting. He ministered to the rich and prominent. He spent time with educated and uneducated. Jesus loved people regardless of their status, social, standing, race, or political views. But Jesus' love was also enduring. Jesus wasn't fickle with his love towards others. His love was not influenced or motivated by circumstances. Right? I'll love you when it's convenient. I'll love you because of whatever. His love endured regardless of the actions of others. There were times when his love was rejected and he continued to love. There were times when he loved those who turned on him, even denying him. And yet he loved them anyway. His love was sacrificial. It's impossible to think of Jesus' love and not consider the sacrificial nature of the love. He often sacrificed his time when dealing with large crowds. He made a great sacrifice in being separated from the Father as he dwelt here on earth. His greatest sacrifice was clearly the offering of himself on the cross for our sin. He loved us enough to take our place, bearing our sin and suffering the righteous judgment of God. For us, this is likely the most difficult aspect to emulate. We love others, but our love often has boundaries. We will give in love for others, but often resist sacrificial love. I pray we will develop the kind of love Jesus had for one another. His love was a costly love, a caring love, a commanded love, and lastly, it was a, con- a conspicuous love. The text says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus knew his time with the disciples would soon be over and he was preparing for the cross knowing what was to come. He would ascend back to the Father and the disciples would remain to continue the work to preach and share the gospel. Jesus knew the opposition would remain fierce. Many would deny the truth and others would question the the legitimacy of the disciples and the message they shared. Love would be essential for the furtherance of the gospel. Love was their apologetic. That's how they convinced people who God was, was how they loved. Love would separate the followers of Christ from the world. By loving one another as Christ loved them, the world would see and know they were true followers of Christ. Now listen, this phrase, as I have loved you, it's not just that the standard is Christ and his love. More, it is a command designed, listen, I want you to get this, designed to reflect the relationship of love that, re, that exists between the Father and, and the Son. That's the design of our love. It's to prove something. It's to reflect something to the world. It's not just something that's nice to do. It's designed to bring out in his followers the kind of unity that characterizes Jesus and his father. It has a purpose. So the new command is therefore not only a gracious response to the love we've received, it's a privilege when rightly lived out that proclaims the true God before a watching world. 
The title of my message is The Proof of Love. Friends, this is why we are here. We're not arguing God's case. He can handle that. We're to love. The love is the thing that the world sees that says God is real. Not you answering questions like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Right? Or where did evil come from? Or is any of that stuff that we love to answer? I I teach a Bible study once a week to primarily unbelievers. It is the greatest blessing of my life. Because they're asking questions that I had answers to that nobody was asking in the church. Nobody's asking the questions that they're asking. And I, I, and I always tell them, I said, look, I have these great answers to questions that you probably don't even care about. And it's true. The world doesn't care about the same things that we care about because once you come to Christ and once you study a whole, a whole bevy of questions come out of that. But before Christ, there's some very unique things that the world wants to know. Very specific things. And we're not answering those questions. And so the world looks at us as irrelevant. Irrelevant, right? That you're not answering the questions I'm asking. Our love, when rightly lived out, proclaims the true God before watching world. I'm reminded of the great need for love in our day. We live in a fast-paced world. Many never really take time to even notice others. We're so busy and burdened taking care of our own needs that we fail to consider the needs of others. And the world is looking for someone to show some loving compassion. They seek someone to care. They're looking for a model. They seek a message that transforms those who were once selfish and unconcerned to loving, giving people. We must, we must, family, we must love one another so the world can experience that love and recognize the source of our love. There's no greater way to reveal Jesus to a world that needs him than by loving as he's loved. Doing a, when I was working through some counseling, one of the greatest things, one of the greatest things a parent can give, a father can give to his son or his daughter is to love his wife. It's the greatest gift. It sets the table for everything else. You're fighting like cats and dogs at home, your witness is destroyed. Anything else that you say after that is irrelevant. I don't care about what you believe in. You can't even love mom. I don't care what you believe in. You don't even, you're you're always angry at dad. If Jesus was so powerful, why can't he break your heart for your spouse? I wonder if there's enough evidence of Christ's love in our lives for the world to notice. As those who know us examine our lives, do they see the love of Christ in us? Are we impacting the unsaved by living out the love of Christ before them? 
Our love for the Lord and one another is the greatest witness we have. It does us no good to recite doctrine if our hearts don't show love. Now, doctrine's important. I'm the first one. Raise my hand on you got to know doctrine. You got to know this book. But you can't know this book without love. Love rules out all divisions. It rules out all bitterness and jealousy and envy amongst God's people. Rules out all pettiness and smallness and shallowness. How much are we to love each other? How much? As Christ loved us is the answer. This is the measure. A costly love, a caring love, a commanded love, a conspicuous love. Growing in love requires lifelong effort. It's easy to talk about this from this side of the pulpit. It's much harder to live it out on that side, right? I just want to say this, and and, and I'm finished. That if you're here, you're young, I don't know where you are spiritually. You could be older, I don't know where you are spiritually. If you're here in this room and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's an aspect of love, there's a deepness to love that you're not experiencing right now. Because, see, what's happened is, is, is you're at enmity with God if you're not saved, if you're not a Christian. You and God aren't friends. The love of God is something that is beyond you at this point. And what he means to do for you is, number one, is he wants you to see yourself rightly. That you are a sinner, incapable of getting to him. And that he is this holy God, this righteous God that demands that we be holy. And every sin that you've ever committed and that you ever will commit will be punished. Either by you or was punished by Jesus on Calvary 2,000 years ago. No one gets a pass. Once you see that you're a sinner, there's no way that you can get to God. You need a Savior. You need someone to stand on your behalf before God. That is Jesus. He paid the penalty for your sin that you can now be reconciled to God. And if you would come to him, he won't turn you away. Come to Jesus if you don't know him. Come to understand what love looks like. That kind of love that he pours out on you while you were yet sinners, while you were his enemy. He loved you. That's the kind of love that's available to you. And that kind of love will change your life. You will be a new creation. You will see things differently. You'll understand things differently. But it starts with understanding yourself right now. I don't know what God is doing in your life, but I would pray that if you don't know him this morning, that you would pray that he would reveal himself to you. That he would save you and give you his spirit.
I pray that God grant that we Christians, we who love him, we who have been redeemed by his precious blood, may wear the badge of discipleship. The badge of discipleship. And that is genuine love for one another. And especially with frail and stumbling believers. Let's pray. Father God, this topic of love is like an ocean that we take out with spoons, Lord, trying to to understand what it is that you've said in your word in these deep depths of this issue called love. Father God, I pray that this morning we understand it just a little bit better. I pray that this morning, Lord, that we are committed as a body, as believers, as your children, we are committed to walking in love and to do it in a way, Lord, that brings you glory. These things we ask and pray in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.